Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber, I'm Director of MTF Labs, and this is the MTF Podcast. Now, whatever your business happens to be, whatever you do for a living, ultimately, at some point and at some level, often very much at the most direct level, the success or failure of what you do comes down to how you make people feel. And if your work is the kind of work that involves bringing people into your space, whether that's a hairdressing salon, a restaurant, a retail outlet of some kind, or maybe experimental labs for cross-sector innovation, a large part of how you make people feel has to do with music. And of course, that means that the music you choose and the manner in which you play it makes a valuable contribution to your ongoing revenue, which is of course a strong argument in favour of paying the creators of the music, not actually optional, but there's a good reason for that, and also an argument in favour of a good sounding system, a decent acoustic space, and all the things that go along with having given the music you play some consideration, which of course includes choosing the actual songs and moods for the content text, the time of day, and the desired behaviours of your customers and colleagues. Now, someone who's given this kind of value a great deal of thought is Swedish entrepreneur Ola Saas. Ola is the CEO of Soundtrack Your Brand, which started life as Spotify Business, before it was spun out to its own separate entity. And he has a track record as the co-founder of Beats Music, now you know it as Apple Music, and the co-founder of Pacemaker, the world's first DJ-driven music-making and sharing platform. Ola Saz, thank you so much for joining us for the MTF Podcast. How are you doing? Doing great. How are you doing? Yeah, very well. It's uh, nice weather in Stockholm. And it's winter in Sweden and it's snowing and it's really, really cold even for Swede. So actually I'm enjoying it because I prefer real winter to kind of the in-between thing. Yeah, fantastic. So you're in charge of something called Soundtrack Your Brand. You better tell us what that is. It's pretty simple. It's a streaming service for businesses, basically. So just like in most of our industries, like mobile phones or or internet connectivity, you have kind of a consumer market, right, where the consumers are buying. And then you have a corporate market, a B2B market, where businesses are the buyers of the subscriptions. That also exists, obviously, for us in the music industry, where you have music in cafes, restaurants, retail, whatnot, any type of physical domain, basically what is referred to as the public performance. And I came from the consumer side. And when I started looking at this, I realized that actually music streaming and how we deploy music streaming models had not been transferred into the B2B market. So I decided to do that and sell business subscriptions, basically. Right. You better explain why can't cafes just put on Spotify, play their playlists? Well, first of all, um, can you open a cinema with your Netflix account? That's the equivalent, basically, of, of using someone's IP or creative art uh, and showing it for commercial purposes or a public purpose. So just like in the movie industry or anything else, when you're actually you know, using the art to uh, drive a brand experience or drive a business, there's a logic. And I didn't invent that logic that's been around for almost close to 100 years, where you should actually pay more in order 
for using the music to sell more coffee. So there's a higher rate for businesses to use music and drive their brand experience, which I think is perfectly logical. And, and I think even we should look to improve that value through time because music is so important for the brands using it. So I'm merely trying to help out in terms of bringing streaming to those customers and you know enabling music in, in, in new, fresh ways for them. Right. Streaming gets a lot of flack from particularly independent musicians who say that not enough of the money ends up in their pocket. And I think they assume, whether rightly or not, that it's because the streaming services aren't paying out enough money. I suspect there's something in between those two things that's also sort of taking a cut along the way. But is it a better rate of return for artists who are being played in businesses or does the same trickle down happen? No, so yes, it's significantly better just to answer your question primarily. And that is basically my kind of quest here. I came from the consumer side. I've, I was one of the co-founders at Beats Music um, that turned into Apple Music, obviously. I've worked very closely with Spotify and I actually co-founded a Spotify business. I founded Spotify Business with Spotify, which was the first attempt of, of bringing streaming into the B2B market. And now in 2018, we pivoted that into Soundtrack to become a completely independent B2B streaming service. Answering your question, I think when you talk about streaming, there's obviously multiple perspectives in this dialogue and I am quite you know into this discussion the whole time. But if you're selling a subscription at $10, which everyone refers to in the consumer space, it's not actually $10 anymore. It's around $5 on a global scale because the ARPU, the average revenue per user, has gone down through all the discounts and kind of diluted through free. So let's talk about it in terms of $5 instead. And then the music, uh, the consumer services have agreed to share what they generate, right? So they give away roughly 70, 75% of what they're generating, which I think is actually, you know, quite good. That's, you know, they're giving away three quarters of what they're earning and they're actually kind of... Yeah, there's a technological infrastructure that needs to be supported. Right. And, and honestly, you know, I try to stay objective, but honestly, they've actually kind of taken this market back to the nightmare where it was 10 years ago. You have to give them some credit for actually bringing consumers into legal consumption of music again and actually paying for consumption. Then there's a, a huge debate that we have had about value of music, of course. And I think it's time to have that right now. But I still think sharing 75% of what you're actually extracting is, I say, fair. And they can't share more than 100%, right? The 100% is 100%. So should they be sharing 99%, then they won't be able to build these fantastic products and this infrastructure. So let's just start with the thesis of $5, them sharing roughly three and a half. Okay, so that's the reality of the consumer market. What I've done in the B2B market with the very, you know, basic logic of, you know, businesses should be paying more because they're using it for multiple years and using it to sell stuff. So I'm actually charging $30 per subscription per business location per month, meaning that regardless of the size of the business, independently of the size of the business. Okay. So for the subscription. So, but if you're a hotel, for example, let's take W Hotels, which is the client and their LA premise has around in one of their hotels, they have around 15 subscriptions because every sound zone, as we kind of refer to them, the lounge, the, the pool bar, the gym, restaurant A, restaurant B, all of them have different soundscapes. Hence, it's a great customer. So W Hotel is kind of paying the music industry in their perception $30 times 15. So they're at, you know, 500 
$500 roughly to, you know, light up their beautiful hotel with beautiful music. So I'm extracting that value. But let's get back to the subscription and, and not get too technical. I'm charging $30. So I'm actually paying out more than $20 in real terms to the music industry. So in general, I'm 10x to the consumer services of what I'm sharing, roughly 8 to 10x, depending on if you're the publisher or the label. So B2B, we kind of have the same distribution model. We're sharing roughly the same percentage of what we're collecting for our interactive subscriptions. But the absolute number, meaning the, the number of dollars, is so much higher. Yeah, it's the same percent of a larger amount. Yeah. So I think that's why kind of I think it's very important that B2B becomes an opportunity for the music industry to add additional incremental revenues into this kind of streaming market. Right. So just a quick question from a, I don't know, it's not really a technical perspective, but just so that I know how the mechanics of it works. If I have a cafe and I give you $30 and you give out, let's say it's $23, of that. And I only play Elton John. Does Elton John get $23 from me? Right. So that's the pro rata model that is applied in the whole music industry, including the consumer or invented in the consumer market. So I'll try to simplify the response to that. If you're a cafe and you're only playing Elton John, then 100% of Elton John that Elton John track or just Elton John is being reported back to our rights holders, right? Into what they call the pro rata distribution of everything that they're kind of collecting from the subscription services. So no, all of my money doesn't go through all the way to Elton John's account, but it goes with the recorded data on it that this should be distributed in the total distribution. This account, 100% of that contribution should be the percentage in that the distribution machine, so to speak. So it's called pro rata. It doesn't move that specific money all the way to Elton John, but it affects the distribution of the total pot of money that the label or the publisher is distributing. I know there's no easy way of explaining this, but what you are referring to, which I think you are, is what people are we're discussing now, kind of more of a user-centric way of paying that actually goes directly to what's being played should be actually distributed to the actual artist and not through this kind of pro rata machine that, that the music is today. Which seems fair. I mean, is there a reason that wouldn't be fair? No, I think it's a very interesting thought. But remember, it's all very new. Just the fact that you're actually, I think the pro rata model is fair, the one that's being adopted today, because basically the labels and the publishers are distributing the total amount of royalties that they are collecting based on what's being played. And I'm paying as a service provider in the B2B space or Spotify in the B2C space or Apple Music, I'm paying them based on what my users are playing. So we still are trying to distribute the royalties based on the consumption, but it's not a one-to-one relationship. But the problem with, or the challenge, I would say, it's not a problem with user-centric, is that it becomes extremely complex in terms of the amount of data that is required to collect all of the playback data in real time from every account and distribute the sense based on those different types of accounts and those different rates. I don't know the number, but my data team have all kind of have a big experience from, from consumer services and we're talking 100x more data than that's being kind of distributed today. And labels and, and publisher are challenged today with the data amounts that they're being 
Well, metadata alone is a problem for, for labels and, and always has been. So I guess yes. dealing with 100 times as much data as before is going to be problematic for them, which, I mean, I don't have a great deal of sympathy for because if that's your business, that's your business. But yeah, I, I can see what the problem is with that. I mean, for me, we're actually looking at this somewhat because we're a smaller market in terms of absolute numbers. I mean, the total market for B2B, a number of locations that are addressable in kind of the Western economies, excluding China and and developing economies around 128 million locations. So it's very small. Uh, I mean, the consumer markets, we're talking billions, right? We're already estimating that the music streaming market for consumers will bypass a billion paying subscribers in 2030. But mine is small, but there's more value. So, but... I also have lower levels of data required. So I think B2B would be a very interesting place to experiment with user-centric models because the data requirements aren't. So we are actually doing that as we speak. But that becomes a very technical discussion. So (laughs) that would take 20 minutes to go through that. Exactly. And probably not the right context for it. I, what I'm, I'm really interested in, in particularly is just to sort of be open with you. One of the things that I'm working on, it's a kind of a long term project, is I'm writing a book about playlists and mixtapes. And I'm really interested in the way in which those things create meaning for people. And so in a context of something like a cafe, when you say soundtrack your brand, what I think of is not just have music on while people are drinking coffee, but what music, in what order, and what falls into this is the sound of our brand and what falls outside of that? To what extent are you involved in those sorts of decisions? So I think that is obviously uh, the question that kind of gets me excited because I've just a little bit of context. I've spent more than 10 years in kind of the music tech scene. I moved into music out of pure passion from a previously boring career and have been able to, uh, you know, live live with my passion and, and, and through very interesting times, obviously. But it's always been in these 10 years starting companies, and this is my fifth startup in the music tech space and starting uh, successful and not so successful companies. All of them have actually been about the same thing, to be honest. It's been being able to distribute the right music to the right place in the right time, contextually relevant musical experiences, be it for the consumer or for now in the public domain. So it's all about that. I mean, all the technology around it are merely the enablers of, you know, what happened 12, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when digitization kind of came into the music industry, all of a sudden, you know, digitization for production, everyone could become producers. So all of a sudden, all of these artists started emerging and you could you could produce a record on your laptop. Digitization and distribution through just digitization of files and the internet, uh, legal or non-legal, <laughs> preferably legal and <laughs> monetized. And then the, the digitization of consumption. I mean, everyone with a smartphone, it was, you know, it was a massive tectonic shift that was occurring. That's kind of why I entered the market. But then with all this complexity and all these fancy words, it comes down to exactly your point. Being able in this, you know, market of abundance or 50 million tracks and lots of new music coming in big and small the whole time, being able to actually help someone fulfill the need in terms of playing the right music for that specific moment in time or place. So it's all about that. And the fun thing was I was lucky enough to be able to work with that in the consumer kind of domain and the job for the consumer. And we've all been following that, right, with the kind of battle between man and machine. And I was on the on the beat side building the New York Times for music and Daniel was here building the, you know, the robot for music. And then the reality is somewhere in between. 
I think. But now it's for the new new context of a public music experience in a public domain, which I found extremely interesting because I'm a former really lousy club DJ. And I mean, you, we all know when we're in, we're, even though you kind of prefer sitting at home in front of your computer, I prefer hanging out in, you know, a really good club. <laughs> <laughs> I like small gatherings. I'm talking about big crowds. I'm not so much a fan of. Okay, yeah. a small intimate club yeah, sure. uh, with an amazing DJ. We've all been there, hopefully. Uh, if not, you need to do that in your life. And kind of that is an amazing experience or a restaurant that actually just got it so right. And I think that was just a whole new intriguing kind of music curation dilemma that I was able now to kind of jump into. And I've been working with the last, you know, five years. Right. So to what extent, if somebody comes to you and said, we want music in our hotel, for instance, our hotel lobby, is there somebody at Soundtrack Your Brand that says, here's what you should play? Here's a playlist that you should uh, think about for, or here's, you know, even customized specifically for who you think your audience is. Is there any of that going on? No, I think, uh, first of all, it's a completely different challenge of thinking about music in the public domain. And it's a completely different challenge thinking about music that represents a brand. So you need to think about those two components. That's completely different than listening in your headphones. So let's just take that Hotel W as an example. Hotel W as a chain has a brand strategy, first of all, like how they're positioning the brand. That brand strategy uh, is obviously then interpreted into a music platform. That's basically how all brands, even small ones, think. What kind of an experience do I want to deliver with everything, with all the senses, through all the senses? And music is, is a huge one. So you need to think about kind of, okay, what's the W brand sound? And then you need to start adding What's the W brand sound in the Los Angeles premise, the hotel in Hollywood? And what's the brand sound in at W hotels in Los Angeles in the reception versus in the gym? So it needs to kind of filter through that logic. And then you need to start delivering on the right musical experience at the right time. So a Monday morning in the reception in WLA sounds different than a Thursday, six o'clock when the bar is just about to kind of kick off or the weekend is coming in. There's also a public kind of context challenge, explicit lyrics, repetitiveness. It just becomes so much more complex and more business like it's, you know, ready for business, the kind of distribution that you need to do there. Answering your question, that curation process can be done by humans, of course, like any type of curation, but that doesn't scale. <laughs> and, and, you know, in music distribution, serving uh, thousands and millions of businesses in real time, we've obviously had to build up the kind of equivalent AI and machine learning logic that Spotify built up for the consumer market, but for the B2B brand market. So no, it's not about people in our office uh, helping W at every single instance playing the right music. It's our technology stack empowering them to deliver a contextually relevant brand experience around the world in real time. The right music at the right place at the right time for that brand. For sure. Which makes me think, because I'm from radio, that's my background, and there's a lot of that. Like since 1948, Todd Storrs 
goes into a, a restaurant and the waitress is putting on the same songs in a jukebox over and over again. He comes up with this idea of playlists and rotations. And then that sort of gets more sophisticated. And then you have two separate boxes of records that are rotating at a different rate. And from there, the whole architecture of how radio station programming has been built around, you have your A rotates, you have your gold tracks, you have your, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then you also have things like rules, like day parts or song separation or artist separation, or don't play the same song at eight o'clock in the morning on a Monday that you play at eight o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday because people have routines, et cetera, et cetera. How much of that last 60, 70 years of thinking goes into something like this AI, which is at the moment, I understand, is choosing music. Is it choosing orders, rotates, day parts, those sorts of things as well? I would almost say everything. I think radio is the benchmark. Radio is the historical kind of, you know, music experience that we're looking at. We actually were looking at radio and radio programming softwares that beats music as well when we were starting up and building that. And we were studying the whole kind of radio programming process, even though we were building a one-to-one consumer service. Even more so does that logic come into play when trying to create millions of radio stations in real time worldwide for brands. So you can almost use that analogy to say what I'm helping brands with is creating multiple radio stations for every sound song worldwide that are relevant in real time. So obviously they can't hire a radio DJ for every, so that would be 15 radio DJs 24 seven for one W hotel. That doesn't scale, (laughs) but that's what we're trying to replicate with the technology that we're empowering music with for brands. Right. Well, the other sort of precedent, I guess, for what you do, and I don't know how welcome the comparison is, but Muzak basically was sort of the prehistoric version of of what you're doing, essentially. How much of the thinking from the Muzak Corporation has carried over to what's being done now? I think it's fair to say a lot as well, because everything has a history. And uh, I think, you know, it started with elevator music in my world right now. So when I explained what I'm doing to my mother the first time, I said, I'm kind of redefining elevator music (laughs) or background music or music, actually, that did did became kind of a term, right? Just like rollerblades did. But, you know, uh, jokes aside, yes, because music was the initial approach to What does a musical experience have to be in a public domain? And the public domain sets requirements. If you're walking into an elevator, playing speed metal is probably not the best thing for the psychological experience when you're during the 20s riding an elevator 50 floors. They were using elevator to calm, uh, music to calm people down. Uh, And at the end of the day, music, I mean, the real core of this whole discussion, I mean, playlisting radio, what I'm doing right now comes back to kind of the psychological effect that music has on the human brain. And I think that's what really got me excited with B2B, because looking at B2B, that doesn't sound that sexy. I'm moving from B2C to B2B. I'm really downgrading my efforts was kind of what what you would think. But Actually not. It was such an interesting, I started reading up on, you know, neuroscientific research on music, how it's been used, how it's been used to help patients calm down, how it's been used in commercial settings for, you know, almost 100 years to drive advertising, messaging and feelings and all the testing 
watching a movie with different types of music, it just changes the experience. And it's so interesting how it actually can affect the brain. Yeah, I mean, you get authors like uh, Daniel Levitin and uh, Oliver Sacks and all these people are thinking about how music works on the brain. Do you go so far as employing psychologists to think about things like not just sort of how to make people feel sort of relaxed and welcome in a hotel lobby, but things like productivity, getting people to work faster and more and those sorts of things, which I guess there were some businesses would want the music to do. We do. We actually don't hire the scientific staff ourselves because it becomes very biased when you're into research. What we do is we collaborate with independent academic platforms in our research, which I think is a much healthier way of kind of running R&D around this. We are, you know, we're building a sophisticated distribution system. But at the end of the day, we have multiple research projects going on in the neuroscientific field, for example, which is amazing because we, one example that we did, which was actually, you know, more kind of econometrical field study together with a huge US chain, was we applied our method onto their retail network and proved 9% top line growth in the product that they're selling. And it's, it's a fast food chain in this instance. 9%. And we applied it with external academics, the world's biggest field study. That's a lot of money put in the context of that brand. That the music industry, or let's say just the music creative side of the industry is unlocking for a brand. Imagine... We have to think about how we can extract more value from the art of music. We have not done a good job. I would say we've done a very bad job as an industry as such. But there is such an interesting value potential in the music moving forward and specifically in B2B. And I kind of made it my quest to go and unlock that value. Because you know what? If you don't want music in your premise, don't play it. But if you're going to play it, you know, you got to pay it. And sorry for sounding, you know, big cheeky saying it, but it, it's that simple. And extracting that value and the way to extract that value is obviously through science and statistical research showing the effect of music. And then at the end of the day, just having them not play music, you know, walk into a restaurant without music and see how fun that is. Mm. One of the, I mean, obviously from radio, what we found was always that you don't want to surprise people too much. You want to reassure. You want the same. And so what you end up with is here is a whole lot of music, not that people like, but that people don't dislike. And you, because you're using it in such an instrumental way, in such a way that is a function rather than, you're not playing music so that people will like the music. You're playing music so that people will like the hamburger. And to what extent does that sort of extract any of the, I don't know, the joy, I guess, of music? Well, I think you're very, you're somewhat spot on in terms of kind of the historical thinking about background music. Why is it called background music? Because it's not supposed to take over, right? It's so supposed to be there, kind of facilitate something else or stimulate something else. And somewhat radio has the same role, right? Kind of passive listening, which people talk about, or proactive listening. But you know what? Most of the consumption in audio is actually passive listening and very seldom are we you know engaged in active listening behavior into podcasts or music so it's the bigger proportion of music that needs to relate or music creation that needs to relate to this backward leaning music experience and i think it doesn't mean that it's less cool or less interesting but it's just like that's where music belongs there it belongs in the foreground and in the background but Answering your question, yes, science points to, for example, if you use too much frontline catalog and the level of recognizability, meaning like, I know this track, I know this track, 
if that's too frequent, then it will disturb the actual, for example, consumption behavior, and you will distract the customer from a buying behavior. In some instances, not so much, because if you're in a restaurant or in a bar, for example, recognizability actually affects the consumption pattern in a positive manner. It fuels sales. So uh, there's no kind of answer. It depends on the business what you're trying to achieve, what day part and everything. So it becomes very complex, but it does have an effect. The level of kind of recognizability uh, affects the brain in different ways. Right. Okay. So here's my big question. Why you? What sort of kid were you that made it so that this is where you would end up and this is what you would be so fascinated by? Well, I think uh, as I refer to my history is trying, like everyone, you know, to get an education, trying to get a job, uh, constantly challenged by the fact of what's my life going to be like? Am I going to be, you know, just trying to survive or am I going to, you know, be okay or where am I? Then I won't give you the, you know, the history of my, <laughs> of my upbringing here in Sweden. But at some point I was able to achieve a level of kind of security, education, work and career, which provided me with the opportunity of actually thinking about what I really wanted to do. And that's a luxury that I'm very, you know, happy to have had and very fortunate to be born here in the context of, of the family that I have and in Sweden. And so I was provided an opportunity, which I chose to go after and work with my passion. And, and as, as a boy, <laughs> cliche, uh, it was sports or music. <laughs> and uh, you're, you're significantly younger than me. Were you, did you get the mixtape bug or is that before your time? Oh, no, for sure. I'm, I, I don't think I am significantly younger than you are. I'm actually completely a mixtape fanatic. And, and I think, I mean, my first music startup was all about replicating the mixtape and kind of in the digitized world. And I think and I was subscribing and I'm being pen palling on mixtapes and things like that as well. So, so I think it, it, it gave me, it presented me with the opportunity to actually work with my passion. And obviously I wasn't just jumping in there romantically, you know, it was 12, 13 years ago, I was on Ibiza and it was the electronic music scene was just, you know, kind of kicking off properly. And digitization was just kicking off. And I was hanging out with some very good friends who were all in the music industry in deep levels, both on the creative side and on the business side. And I obviously emotionally felt like these people are working with their passion. I should be able to do so myself. I have some money put away. I can take a risk. But the other side, part of my brain was, and look at what's going on in this macro. Digitization is exploding right in front of us. This market will change. There will be massive opportunity. I should be able to make a living by kind of making an effort. And then it, my kind of thing was building companies. So we started up our first company in this space called Tony and Pacemaker. A pacemaker is something that I remember very well when the first one came out, this idea that this was a like a palm-held DJ decks that you could uh, load up with tracks and all the rest of it. You were a hardware company. What was the sort of the thinking behind that? Well, <laughs> we weren't a hardware company. Uh, we became a hardware company because we couldn't find any other way to distribute our idea. So Pacemaker was basically a full-on two CDJs and a 2000 mixer and a, you know, in an iPod back then. It was a full professional DJ setup as the same size of a, of a sandwich. But the idea wasn't to build you know, the DJ sandwich hardware. The idea was to do exactly what I'm trying to do today was to extract 
lots of information and knowledge from the DJs of the world, because we thought like in a market of abundance, there's going to be 50 million tracks available. What is the best source of curation and kind of finding? It's obviously there's a breed of people out there calling themselves DJs or selectors. What if we could aggregate the collective intelligence of them, turn that into kind of a filtering machine? So that was really the company's idea. We started collecting the metadata from DJs and connecting to DJ software and hardware. Then we realized we had to build the actual capture platform ourselves, which was the hardware. And then we built this beautiful Swedish hardware and spent 80% of our money doing that. But the software idea was actually creating a taste exchange market between tastemakers of music and taste takers of music in a market of abundance in the digitized music market. Then it became a hardware company, <laughs> you know, uh, democratizing DJing. Right. Is Tastemaker still a thing? Tastemaker is a thing. Pacemaker is also a thing. <laughs> I mean, in terms of tastemakers being uh, people that you follow there, I think of somebody like Giles Peterson, for instance, who I, I'm really interested in, who is somebody who, if he likes something, chances are I'm going to. And so, uh, you know, but there isn't a definition of a genre that he represents. It's just Giles Peterson's sort of thing. And he's a tastemaker in that culture. Yeah, no, I mean, so I'm assuming we listen to the same Mixcloud show every week on the Monday then. So, <laughs> yeah. and and Chris Coco as well. So, I mean, I've, I, that was my whole idea in the initial part. Like, instead of following an algorithm, following a human is so much more interesting. But if you could find kind of the evolution intersection of that with also kind of machine-driven recommendations, that's the future. But uh, yes, I think tastemakers, I mean, Beats, Jimmy's brief to me was, I want to build the New York Times for music. And what he meant by that was a completely editorially driven product. Uh, and then we obviously ended up building more sophistication than that. But I think tastemakers are as relevant as they were 10, 15 years ago, but in a different context where you can kind of, you can start by coming in through a tastemaker and then expanding from there, or you can, you can start with a track and then finding a tastemaker based on that track. It's just different levels of aggregation of curation in my world. And I still think humans are the most interesting because they're not machines. They can, you know, act completely illogical and kind of add track A with track Z that has actually no interrelationship, but there's still awesome tracks. But a machine could never figure out the interconnectivity between them. Right. So Zane Lowe was a good call for Beats and then Apple Music, I guess. I haven't listened to his interview with you yet, so that's on my list. So uh, yes, I think, you know, honestly, I thought it was very late and very kind of opportunistic and may I use the word cheesy when Beats, we started bringing in just one or two of these curators, but uh, they were all of a sudden positioned in a commercial context, which became much more interesting because then the music industry are looking at it. But look at BBC. I mean, I've grown up on, you know, BBC online radio. And that is, I think, the historical example of human-driven curation and really good service and still kind of a source for inspiration for myself. And St. Lowe came from, made his kind of, cut his teeth at BBC, right? Sure, yeah. So how did the Beats thing come about for you? Because there was already the headphones, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the short story is that when we did Pacemaker, Jimmy and Dre had seen our vision with that company. It was a, an aggressive vision. It was a vision about, you know, creating the next music service and taste exchange between kind of all the same lows of the world with all the taste takers, meaning the whole global consumer market. And then they also were into hardware at that time because we all know the history where they 
realized that they were not going to make that much money from their publishing anymore or and um, they need to do something else and they they started off with consumer electronics which they did very successfully but the idea was always to build a power brand and the leading kind of pop culture brand of the u.s that was the beats ambition and what better kind of epicenter of that ambition than a music service right so but our connection came from them actually looking at pacemaker the device we were at ces and we had won like six innovation prizes as the only kind of startup who've ever won that and i was able to meet with them and we created a relationship where they actually wanted to acquire pacemaker and add it into their hardware portfolio and then kind of the software components as well unfortunately we weren't able to sell pacemaker to them at that time because we were able to get in Wired magazine, the, you know, the middle page of that. And we were all over the place and people were talking about Pacemaker as the new Apple and uh, completely uh, nonsense. But our investors thought that, you know, we would be a very, very, very valuable company. And Jimmy and Dre didn't want to pay <laughs> anything, basically. <laughs> they just wanted a you know, piece of the company in order to, to bring it to the next level. And I wasn't able to kind of, I believed in that, but I wasn't able to broker that understanding between my investors and them. So we failed with bringing them into Pacemaker. But uh, then when we crashed with Pacemaker, which we did, we couldn't manage reiterating hardware as a startup. It was just too complex. And so then I acquired the software components and kind of the online distribution platform of DJ Mixes, which was, you know, the first upload and share DJ platform uh, way before Mixcloud. So Moving from there, we quickly turned that asset into a company called Let's Mix, which became like the leading DJ-driven, human creation-driven music platform. And that music platform then I own because I bought it from Tony with my own money and I was able to re-engage with Jimmy and Dre. And then we decided to, the second time around, actually turn Let's Mix into Beats Music and my team. Uh, they acquired Let's Mix and, and we started building Beats Music. And uh, then we acquired a company in the US and, and, and so forth. And then it all ended up in a, in a very nice place, right? And now it's got the Apple brand on the top of it. Was that your exit point? No, I, I exited way before that, unfortunately. So eight, nine months before the acquisition. And then I was still there working and just uh, realizing the fact that uh, that the company was bought for more than $3 billion and... <laughs> I had moved back to Sweden was an interesting one. You know what? No one, no foul play. They did good with me. And I actually left for personal reasons. I couldn't move with my family. My father was sick at the time. So I was just on a plane 200 days uh, and just had to move away. Well, you didn't do too badly by the look of things. The soundtrack, your brand seems to be doing rather well. But I guess it's been a tough year. Oh, yes, it's been, you know, for any industry or any individual, it's been a tough year. Uh, But, you know, having 2020 was supposed to be the year when, you know, we had launched what I think was kind of the complete product. And we've done 10,000 licensing deals, the equivalent of Spotify or, or Apple, but for B2B streaming rights, which obviously took some time and effort. And we had gotten to what I thought was like a product market fit, like where now we have the streaming product for businesses. It's a very different product than a consumer product, by the way. It's, it works in a different way when you're using it for, for a B2B use case. But then in you know March, everything changed right in front of us. And uh, basically this year didn't become, you know, kind of the, the rocket ship that we were planning it to be. It became a struggle to survive. Was this a case of not getting new customers or old customers dropping off 
this was a case of both. We actually had a really nice run. We The story was that I, I founded Spotify Business with Spotify as my co-founder in 2014, 2013, 14, with, with uh, two other co-founders. And then Spotify Business was kind of the, the, the experiment to see if streaming could be done in the B2B space. It could. We, we concluded two years into it. And in 2016... Into 2017, we made a decision to go completely independent because we wanted to go with our own brand and build our own company and go globally and renegotiate all the deals and everything. So, so we pivoted into an independent company. When you say independent, do you mean that Spotify doesn't own any of it anymore? There's still a shareholder in the company, but the product, and we were sourcing music from their back end initially um, when doing it, uh, and the product was called Spotify Business, obviously. So the pivot was, okay, we're moving away from home. We want to build soundtrack into the next big kind of music streaming component. And uh, we started working on that. And that takes obviously a couple of years of, of re-engineering the whole licensing structure, logic, getting everyone aligned from publishers to the labels and rate structures and, and models and everything. And then in 2018, we were able to roll out our first markets and kind of move out. And then into 2019, we, towards the end of 19, we were live in 74 markets with 50 million tracks, the equivalent catalog as a consumer service. So a fairly complex exercise, building uh, software, raising money at the same time and kind of getting to a point where, okay, we're ready. We're ready to go. This is it. This is the next kind of a big growth ambition into the music streaming industry. And then COVID hit. And uh, we had to deal with, you know, just in a two weeks or something, we lost like 35% of our revenue. And, <laughs> you know, it was just the engine stopped. And then we've been fighting our way through this year. And actually, believe it or not, we're coming out of this year with, with some growth to last year, which is more than a miracle in relative terms of what's going on. But that's been just because we're a software company, we're so flexible, we can move in between markets and, and kind of react to the reality. But hopefully 2021 will be what 2020 was planned to be for us. Right. I guess one last thing, which is something that I've been interested in for a long time, and the situation's got better, but even though 50 million tracks is an awful lot of music, it's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what has ever been released on uh, particularly the major record labels. So it's something like 80 80 to 90% of everything that's ever been released by the major record labels has never been available digitally. To what extent is that interesting to you in terms of actually expanding that 50 million to start to recover the, you know, the archives or the, you know, the lost the lost music? I think we're so early in the process, right? So we do have somewhat of the luxury of following behind the consumer market here on what's going on there and kind of letting them pave the way. So that's my first statement. The second statement is that B2B and the music challenge is very different as I've spoken to previously and we've discussed. So it's obviously not about frontline catalog and about, you know, the next release. It's about the right uh, art for the right context. And having said that, obviously, and with more sophistication in the tools of AI and ML and classification and and analyzing and actually tracking and targeting and pinpointing music that is right for that specific purpose, then more content to pick from creates broader creative opportunities. So 
yeah, 50 is a lot. Very few of them are consumed. But also in the B2B context, we consume a lot of more music because music is played you know, in hotels 24-7. So music is on the whole time. Music is there. So we need uh, a deeper bucket to to select music from. But right now, that's not my challenge. Obviously, 50 million is something no one else can even is even close to providing that in the B2B space. I mean, the legacy competition we have are, are still uploading, you know, downloads from iTunes or burning CDs without any type of ambition to put the correct metadata. Hence, no ambition to report or remunerate accordingly, which I think is absolutely unacceptable. And that needs to be fixed first. So we monetize this opportunity, we monetize it correctly and fairly. That's the first stage of, of B2B. Right. I guess the finally, is there a sort of a bigger horizon beyond soundtrack your brand? Is it soundtrack your city or soundtrack your army? Or, you know, is there, <laughs> are, there, are there sort of um, other contexts for music to go into that, that currently aren't? I mean, for sure. I mean, back to why I think this is such such a fun place to be in. I mean, when I entered it, I thought it was moving from B to C to B to B and just fixing something. But honestly, when I started thinking about there's a soundtrack for everything. There's a soundtrack for, you know, when you were traveling to Island X when you were young or you were in love with, with this person or there's a soundtrack to uh, New York 1978. There's a sound, you know, the soundtrack is there and can be expanded in any direction. And I think that's the quest of this company. Uh, our initial monetization path is background music, you know, uh, fixing background music and extracting more value for the creators from background music. But it can expand into very visionary thoughts moving forward. And but I think still our role is always the public context and kind of the public experience or, or the physical experience. And I think that's kind of what divides us in between the consumer services. Right. And presumably you have a room full of technicians and people who are sort of and salespeople and, and making all this happen. What are they listening to? Uh, first of all, I mean, Soundtrack is still a very small company. We're only 70 people and it's mainly typical Swedish style engineering and product. <laughs> we, we hardly have any salespeople or anything. We, we build everything to the product will kind of distribute itself online if it's good enough. That's, you know, the thesis of somewhat the same approach as Spotify. And, uh, but the team uh, obviously work here for multiple reasons, small type technology, fun team, but all of them are obviously interested in music, but there is absolutely no red thread in terms of uh, music preferences in uh, throughout the team. Anything from, you know, death metal down in the engineering, engineering caves, uh, all the way to kind of our, our music uh, science team who are training our ML models, who are obviously fairly sophisticated people digging into niche jazz stuff. And, and, then, and, and somewhere in the middle is me, the old guy who kind of can kick off anything from an old Cafe Del Mar CD to, you know, <laughs> some, some good old MTV unplugged stuff, you know? Sure, so, sure. I, I, there's obviously... So you don't have your product in the office piping music to keep people productive? And- oh, you mean in, uh, in the actual office? Sorry. So so that's an interesting follow-on question. How do you then cater to that? Sure. Because obviously, because obviously how does that work? And 
the way we cater to it is actually because we don't have customers. We only have us. So we don't have to think about kind of the brand to customer experience here. We only have to think about everyone being happy in, in the kitchen or in the lounge or in, in kind of the entrance. So we have a system here in the office who actually can choose the soundtracks for all these different time periods. And it goes through our music technology team. So there's been a, uh, a massive debate on kind of how we do this, obviously. Uh, and you know what? A lot of our customers are actually office spaces as well. So uh, believe it or not, law firms actually like to have music in the reception. And, and for them, it's, you know, it needs to be according to the brand and their customers come in. But if you don't have customers coming in, it's a staff-driven soundtrack that you need to kind of get to. And that's a whole socio-psychological experiment, I, I promise you. But a whole lot of fun and with great technology and, and platform, music at the office is intense, but diverse. You can please everyone? Never. Or just not annoy everybody all the time? If we had customers, I would have the very easy response to everyone and say, look, we're not here to play music for you. We need to find the perfect balance for our customers and that you can survive through as kind of working here. But we unfortunately don't have customers. So it's all about them. Hence, it becomes this complicated complicated dilemma but also fun right because there's there's uh, very interesting things coming out in the kitchen today for example that's a challenge to program for i'm sure ola thanks so much for your time it's been really fascinating and i really enjoy what's a real favorite subject of mine so thank you very much thanks very much that's the CEO of Soundtrack Your Brand, Ola Sars, and that's the MTF podcast. You will, of course, find Soundtrack Your Brand at SoundtrackYourBrand.com. I'm Dubba at Dubba on Twitter, and you'll find MTF Labs at MTFLabs.net and at MTF Labs on all the social bits and pieces. Thanks to Sergio Castillo for the additional technical production, Marek Jakubovic and Airtone for the music, and Run Dreamer for the MTF audio logo, which you're going to hear again very shortly. And of course, thanks also to you for listening. Hope you enjoyed and that you're now somewhat inclined to share, like, rate and review. And I will catch you back here next week. Let's talk soon. Cheers. 